In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I must admit that I was struck by today's Old Testament lesson in Isaiah 51 for a couple of reasons. First, it's a wonderful follow-up teaching to last week's gospel lesson where we heard about the Canaanite woman and the persistence of prayer and holding God to his promises. And second, and this is the main reason, it has this language of, of God bringing comfort to the waste places, making the wilderness like Eden and the desert like a garden. I thought, man, that sounds really good right about now, right? I thought, you know, there's something there that we can probably grab a hold of and relate to. It seems like the only thing we can talk about right now is the weather. Nobody likes to just make small talk about the weather, but that's what we end up doing. That's like the first thing out of our mouths whenever we see each other, right? We'll finish our service today, and um, Jesus will deliver his gifts of forgiveness and salvation to us, and it's like we're, we're having this mount of transfiguration experience, and then we come down the mountain, we're going to walk outside, and we're, we're going to remember, oh yeah, it's hot. You know, I drive over Stillhouse Bridge just about every day, and I see the lake get drier and drier, and now it's down to a record low. And it could present some major challenges for our community if it doesn't turn around soon. So the only thing that we can do is pray and wait for it to rain. There's not much else we can do. And yet as desperate as we are for rain, we are not driven to despair. Why? We know that eventually it will rain. How do we know this? Because we look to the past. The same thing happened last year. It was a miserably dry summer with constant triple-digit heat, and we waited and waited and waited for it to rain, and it finally did. Were we surprised that eventually it rained? Not really, but we rejoiced. And we too often forget how dependent we are on these, on these natural cycles. So all it takes is for a good long drought to come along and and remind us of how dependent we are. But we always, no matter what, we always have this confidence that we will get what we need because it's always been that way in the past. The rain will come. The rain will deliver us from the tyranny of dryness and heat. And eventually it will spill over onto every patch of that dead, crunchy, brown stuff and it will bring forth fruitfulness and new life. Well, in a similar way, we await the fulfillment of God's promises. In today's passage from Isaiah, God is speaking to his people who are in Babylonian captivity. It's a long story, but they ended up there because they refused to hear God's word, they kept turning to idols, and they kept violating God's commandments in the worst of ways. So here they were, decades into their self-imposed timeout, and many of them were finally learning this hard lesson. There were still some there who refused to hear God's word still, and God had a lot to say to them through his prophet Isaiah. But here in our text, in Isaiah 51, he's speaking to the ones who did want to hear. Those who wanted to pursue righteous living. Those who wanted to, to, to worship God alone. Those who were ready to wait for him. 
That's who he's talking to. And here was God's message to them. Look to the past. While in exile, things look bleak. But if you're wondering where all this is going, all you need to do is look back. There's this common truism in the corporate world and in the marketplace that whenever you're making a new hire, here's the the, the slogan, whenever you're making a new hire, past performance is indicative of future success, right? So if you're going to hire someone, the best indication of how they're going to do their job uh, now and in the future is by checking their track record. Now, if we can frame that in biblical terms, God's faithfulness in the past is indicative of what he will do in the future. God wanted his people who were in exile, those who earnestly wanted to follow him, he wanted them to look at his track record. Scripture says, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, go back to where this whole thing began, this whole enterprise. You didn't come into being on your own. You were hewn from a rock. You were dug from a quarry. Just down the street from our house on 2484 is a stone quarry. It's a dry and dusty place. It has trucks constantly shuffling in and out, transporting their loads. At certain times of day, you can hear the heavy machinery cutting and digging and somehow bringing something useful out of this barren wasteland, this pit. That's the metaphor here. What quarry did God dig or cut them from? What rock did he carve them out of? He said, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless and multiply him. So the metaphor that God used here is very, very apt. Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead. They were up there. They weren't spring chickens. They were advanced in years, right? Fertility out the window. Sarah's womb was like a barren wasteland, and it had been the whole time. But God promised them a son. And they would have to wait several more years before they would see this son of promise, but he did come. That's one notch in God's belt. How about the rest of the matriarchs of Israel? Rebecca, just as barren as her mother-in-law, until Isaac, the promised son, prayed for her and they were able to conceive Jacob and Esau. Speaking of Jacob, how about his wife Rachel? Also barren until the Lord remembered his promise and opened up her womb. I'm sensing a common theme here. What about you? God wanted his people to know where they came from. They were brought from nothingness, from barrenness, from dryness. They were cut from a quarry by this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, as Romans chapter 4 says. They were made into a nation so that God would use them for his purposes. He had not forgotten that. He was not going to leave them in exile forever. 
His people didn't know this at the time, but while Isaiah was speaking these words, Cyrus the Great was already coming on the scene. He was already making a stir. And Cyrus the Great was that, that Persian ruler who was, going to, uh, who was going to conquer Babylon and therefore liberate the Israelites and enable them to go back to their promised land. God was telling them, he wasn't, he wasn't spilling the beans about Cyrus just yet, but he was telling them to look to his faithfulness in the past to know about what's going to happen in the future. And it was going to take several years yet. Their task in the moment was to hold to the promise. Hold to the promise. Just as Abraham held to it, even though he wavered at times. And by holding to that promise, they would be counted righteous. Just as Abraham was. Just as Abraham was counted righteous, not because of himself, but because of a righteousness that was going to be revealed in God's time. You see that deliverance that God promised his people while they were in exile. In our text today, it it was just going to be a down payment. It was going to be something to hold them over until a future salvation was more fully realized. Because what was God's purpose in cutting this nation from the quarry? Why did he call Abraham in the first place? To bring blessing to the nations. Why did God bring his people out of exile? Because of his promise to Abraham. He brought them back into their land because of what he wanted to do for the nations. And that was to give us Jesus, the son of Abraham, who would bring blessing to the nations through his life, death, and resurrection. While Israel was brought forth from a womb that was barren, Jesus did them one better. Jesus came in a more miraculous way. Having been conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus shows us that he is the embodiment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of God's promises find their fulfillment. They find their yes in Jesus Christ. In our passage today has these promises in it that sound oh so good to us as people who are desperate for rain. It says, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. And where do these promises find their fulfillment? In Jesus. In Jesus, who is the new Adam, come to bring the paradise that was lost at the first Adam's fall. Jesus, the master gardener who has come to tend to his father's vineyard, pruning the dead branches and grafting new ones in. That Jesus. It would be a long time before God's people were going to be brought out of exile. Kind of a short time in biblical terms, just in terms of the scope of the timeline. But you better believe if we were there and we were having to wait several more years, we would think it was a long time. It was going to be a long time until they would be brought back. A long, longer time still until the Messiah would come. During Babylonian captivity, the children of Israel had a lot of waiting to do. A lot of thinking to do. 
but God called them to hold fast to their confession that he is the God of their salvation, even if they didn't see it yet. Verse 5 said that his salvation had already gone out. We call that type of thing prophetic perfect. So whenever God says, whenever God talks about something that's going to occur in the future, but he says it as if it's already true and as if it's already happened. My salvation has gone out from me. It's already done. That was for the Old Testament church. What about you? What about us New Testament folks? Well, we have a lot of waiting to do too. We wait for our daily bread. We wait for the things that we need to support this body and life. We wait for the rain to come. But even more than all that, we wait for the final salvation that God has promised to those who hold fast to the confession of Christ as Lord. We eagerly wait for the day when Jesus will return and take us away from this valley of tears and sorrow, this dry and dusty place of death, and bring us everlasting comfort. That's where this is all headed. That's what we're waiting for. We wait for that day when we have the new creation, not just by faith, but by sight. So as Christians today, who endure our own exile, who are waiting for God to deliver his final salvation on the last day, God tells us, look back. He tells us to wait with hope. He tells us to remember his track record. If we want to know where all this is headed, we look to the past. If we want to know about what God will do, we remember what he has done. He says to us, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. We have been cut from the rock that is Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, the Spirit of God has brought us to life and made us children of Abraham by faith and heirs to the promises of God. From a barren wasteland, a barren wasteland of sin and death, God has brought forth life as he has taken dead sinners and raised us to life with Christ and grafted us into him such that now we are righteous, fruit-bearing branches. That's what he's done. You're gathered here this morning with your fellow children of God to stand on your confession of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And by holding fast to that confession, even when it seems we must wait for its complete fulfillment, God counts us righteous through faith. Righteous, justified, not guilty, clean, perfect in God's sight. Not because of you, but because of what he's given to you in Christ. We wait for the new creation. 
we wait for that day when we will experience the garden of the Lord with, with joy and gladness. But his word tells us, church, that that has already begun. It has begun in our midst, in the, in the waters of baptism, in the word of absolution, in the sacrament of the altar. You are given a taste of the new creation where there is no sin, no death, no barrenness. New life. You are given free access to the new Eden, heaven, the new creation. And if that's true of you now, what does that indicate? What will God do for you in the future? So remember, Christian, that you are cut from the quarry. You are God's doing. He has brought you out of the barren wasteland of sin and death, and He has made you into something useful, something righteous and fruitful. You are hewn from the rock that is Christ, and you stand on your confession of Him as Lord along with the whole Christian church on earth and in heaven. And what God has begun for you in Christ, He will bring to completion. He will finish what he has started. At the end of our passage, God says, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. We're waiting right now. But we know that it will rain eventually. But God says that there is something even more enduring than the water cycle. It's his promise to you in Christ. It's his salvation, his forgiveness, his righteousness. Even as you wait to see the kingdom in its fullness, these gifts are yours. Here and now. These gifts that Jesus gives to you in his word, they are an indication of his faithfulness. They are an indication, a promise, a guarantee of what he will do for you in the future. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.